Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we break apart and discuss for you the curated links from damninteresting.com. I am Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Courtney Hopkin. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. So uh, you may have or you may know someone who has Lyme disease. Mm. I do. I mean, I don't have it. I know someone. Sorry. <laughs> I was uh, going to offer condolences. Yeah. Uh, so if you know someone or you have Lyme disease, uh, you know that one, the treatments are very scarce. Two, it takes a super, super long time to get diagnosed because people uh, either don't believe you or they test you for it and then they say you don't have it and then you end up getting tested later and you do have it. Mm -hmm. So these people are going rogue. Uh, They're trying all sorts of things, Uh, one of them being uh, the bee treatment, the bee sting treatment. These people who actually this article is by Texas Monthly and the people mentioned in this are in Austin, which is where we are. Very nice. They contact a beekeeper the beekeeper meets them in a parking lot in this particular story it's a the parking lot of a whataburger which is super scientific which is a a whataburger which is a local fave burger place should i forget no one else has whataburger right it's everywhere here started in corpus christi texas it's a huge deal here and when people move away that's the first thing they ask you They uh, So in this particular story, she meets uh, the beekeeper, shows up with like two, what they describe as sticks of bees. They're just like long holders. I don't know, like the size of a chopstick or something. The person in the article and her friend take turns administering the bee stings on either side of their spines. They're upping their tolerance, I guess, the amount of stings that they can take. So she's up to 10 now. The bee stings them, then the poor bee does not survive. The, the bee yeah. dies, so yes, the beekeepers are okay with this. I assume they're getting compensated for the loss yes, of a single bee. Yes, they pay them. Okay. Well, is, is Lyme disease an autoimmune condition? Yes, so okay. it's like attacking your... Yeah, that's what I understand. Like, I've heard of this bee sting treatment for autoimmune diseases, because basically what it means is you have an immune system that's overactive and mm-hmm. is attacking everything. And so by introducing some kind of toxin or a poison like a bee sting, it's basically saying, hey, immune system over here, here's the thing you want to attack, not my healthy organ. Stop right? attacking me. Mm-hmm. Give it something to do. Yeah. Yes. And this immediately improves the symptoms? Like, is there... N- no. Uh <laughs> The implication was that they've been doing it for so long that it does do something for them. Uh, but, you know, it's mostly about, like, what this is like what to do this. What people will go through to yes. get treatment in, an, in a situation where doctors are unwilling or unable to help. Yes. Yeah. And, like, yeah, and Lyme disease is, you know, becoming more and more prevalent. I don't know if it's prevalent, but people are, you know, recognizing more and more that they might have it. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, just like autoimmune conditions, it's almost a catch-all for, mm, we don't have house MD on hand, we really don't know what it is, it's probably going to fall under this umbrella of widely misunderstood or undiagnosable things, right? Right. Yes. And so, yeah, and these people are taking it into their own hands. It's like, if you're not going to research it, if you're not going to help me out, I'm going to go on the internet and find out what other people are trying, I'm going to try that too. So bee stings it is. Wow. I'd be curious to see if it helps with other autoimmune diseases. Like maybe we'll get like a, a line of people 
mm-hmm. signed up for B treatment. And so. by the spine, too. I mean, that's a highly sensitive. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go through it, you might as well. Yeah, not just do it up and down your arm. Uh, <laughs> like a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> well, and to respect the life of the creature that is, you know, delivering this venom that is easing your symptoms, you mm-hmm. know, make sure it's at the highest efficacy, right? Yes. Yeah, I would imagine if this is proven to work, they could, like, I don't can they extract the venom from bees without killing the bee? Or is. I'd like to think that if they knew how to do that, we'd already be doing it right Probably, now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a thing where Not that would be do. impossible for us. Uh, right. So, you know, you know, if you have Lyme disease, Maybe this uh, option will help you. Next link. Next Next link. All right. This article comes from Pete Langman, who wrote for welcomecollection.org, and the article is called Dating on Dopamine. The author has Parkinson's and um, goes on to talk about how people with Parkinson's and especially young adults that have it are usually prescribed a family of drugs called dopamine agonists, which are known to cause compulsions for things like sex, shopping, and gambling. And usually it gets to the point where, you know, you can't really control these kinds of things. Um, A lot of them are finding that they've lost thousands of dollars in gambling. They've bought, you know, three sports cars over a period of time. Um, Commonly, they find that they're just hyper promiscuous when they've never had these uh, impulses before um, having sex with 40 different partners. And obviously the implications for this are a lot more damaging for women that have Parkinson's versus men. Right. And if you stop taking the medicines that are causing these side effects, now your Parkinson's is advancing and getting worse. And Exactly right. Yeah. It's a really difficult kind of situation. And often it's really difficult to kind of understand where a tipping point is. Like, well, this has gone too far because, you know, when you're getting to a baseline, where your Parkinson's symptoms are going away and you're feeling better, maybe a zest for life. Where do you draw the line or understand where, like, I'm feeling better, I'm living life, or living a little too much life? One sports car is okay, four, (laughs) maybe too many. Right, right. The article also goes in to say, you know, when you're dating with Parkinson's, like, how and when do you drop that information? It's a deal breaker for a lot of people. Nobody really wants to enter a relationship knowing they're going to be a caregiver or even to have someone who's going to have to caregive for them. That's that's a difficult dynamic to really consider at the onset. Yeah. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This comes from the BBC. Larry Blyberg has written about Point Roberts, Washington. So there's an interesting thing. The border between the United States and Canada, as you may know, is on the 49th parallel. And that was just sort of a treaty. They said common, this common is where it's going to be, obviously. 49th parallel. Every American <laughs> learns that in school. You know, you'd think with our 50 states, it would have been the 50th. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. could we have just reached a little further? <laughs> <laughs> but so the line, as it turns out, goes, you know, very nicely right across the middle of North America. But there is a little peninsula over by Washington. And because the line cuts straight across, you end up with the Canadian Peninsula coming down and then the very tip of it poking down below the 49th parallel and being part of America again. But you can't access this little part of the peninsula unless you go up through Canada and come back down around. Mm. So it's, it's just a weird geographic oddity. And this article is discussing just the sort of the lifestyle and, and weird aspects of living in a very isolated little area. It's only five square miles. Uh, And it's about 25 miles south of Vancouver. There are 1,300 permanent residents. But they said one of the benefits of living in this place is the laws are different, obviously, in Canada and America. So, for example, they have 1,300 residents, but they have 60 gas stations. What? Because a huge amount of traffic from Canada comes over the border to buy gas over in this little town because it's about 20 to 30 percent cheaper because of the various uh, national tariffs and everything on gas. Huh. And all of the stores there have a you know cash register for Canadian bills and they have a cash register for American bills. 
And there's other weird stuff. Like every time you go home, you're crossing a border. You're going through customs. Oh, my god! And so there's a whole lot of very weird things they talk about where you can bring sliced tomatoes across the border, but you can't bring whole tomatoes. <laughs> because there's weird agricultural, like you might be planting these invasive species. And like there's a bunch of weird tariffs on bringing lamb across the border. So dog food that has lamb in it, you can't have that food for your dog if you live in Port Roberts because you're not going to be able to get it there. <laughs> And there's other weird stuff like during the mad cow, when the, when the mad cow hype was at its highest, children on the school buses who were driving through Canada to get to the mainland of Washington to go to the high school had like roast beef sandwiches confiscated out of their lunchboxes. But one of the really interesting things they note is that this is an area which is sort of unofficially known for housing a lot of witness protection relocation guests, I suppose. Because it's basically a gated community that is guarded by the Border Patrol. Uh. And because of the nature of it, no one with a criminal record can get in at all, period. And you have to have a passport and you have to go through two border crossings to get from the United States to Canada because you've got to go into Canada and then back out of Canada into the U.S. again. And so it's sort of just a, a, an unspoken thing. And some of the people who have lived there sort of scoff at it, but they also go, you know, we had that neighborhood barbecue and somebody brought out a camera and everybody freaked out, went out of their way to get away. (laughs) (laughs) What an interesting, it's almost like Basque or something where it's like this tiny sovereign-ish type of community, but with a high concentration of witness protection folks. Mm -hmm. Well, and they note that a lot of people aren't necessarily witness protection, but have moved there for their own safety. Mm-hmm. You know, if a restraining order is not working, someone's not obeying it. If you go on the other side of this border, they really can't get to you anymore. And they also note shipping is really nice because, you know, if you're trying to buy something online, they'll ship to the United States, but they, you know, it's much more expensive to ship to Canada. So a lot of Canadians have a post office box uh. in Port Roberts and they just drive across the border, pick up their package for a lot cheaper and then drive back. Wow. It's just an interesting little oddity of a of a little community. What so. kind of time is involved in crossing a border every day? How much of your life is spent yeah. glaring at a border guard <laughs> waiting in line? Give me back my roast beef sandwich. Well, yeah. If it's a regular thing, like you have a P.O. box, ideally you you know develop some kind of friendship or relationship like, hey, Carl, here again. But just think of every time you left your neighborhood, you had to wait in a line. The You know, this is like you're waiting on a person who might be dealing with something uh, who might be confiscating tomatoes <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> He's had a bad day and he yeah. doesn't want to deal with you. Yeah. Every single time you need to go to work, this happens. I wonder about those gas stations. Like, is that the community's, like, their core? Their cash cow? Right. That's where they make all their money. I don't know. They said that, like, the, I mean, they said it's really obvious the grocery store has far more groceries than 1,300 people could ever consume. They say, we obviously are catering to the larger Vancouver metro area. Mm-hmm. There's just tons and tons of people. They said, I think they estimated about 40% of the traffic across the border are Canadians looking to pick up packages or buy gas or buy groceries. And presumably that grocery store only serves sliced tomatoes. <laughs> well, they had they said in the grocery store there's signs, really helpful signs that say like, oh, okay, these potatoes can go back across the border, but these Honeycrisp apples, absolutely not. Right. Right. And I don't know why Honeycrisp apples can't go across the border, but they made wow. a note. So it was very... Do they have like a food court where if you just have a real hankering for a Honeycrisp, you can just like nom it down <laughs> real fast while you're there on the premises? Well, speaking of, of cravings, they, one of the other things they noted is that uh, hamburgers, you can cook a hamburger medium rare in America. In Canada, you cannot. It's what? illegal for a restaurant. You have to cook it well done for food safety things. And so people will... If they want a really good burger, they'll say, oh, we got to go down to Port Roberts where they can cook it right. And, wow. Yeah. If you ever need to be protected from somebody, 
go move to this level. Yeah, but it seems so isolating and hyper concentrated. Like, you know, is that just sort of like when people don't bring out a camera at a block party? Are you just all like, hey, what are you here for? Who are you hiding from? Yeah, I I suspect there's probably a lot of those conversations going on. They noted it's sort of like a little bucolic, just kind of pleasant area to live. There's a lot of eagles and there's, you know, this sounds like like pods. American eagles, of course. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. This sounds like the next like hit drama. That's uh, right. Murders in Port Roberts. Uh, yeah. We have to know who whose jurisdiction is the this. The new Fargo or whatever that one that took place in uh, Norway. I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Uh, this is a weird article from a site called Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, uh, I'm having a hard time telling exactly what it's called, but I think it's just called whatever. This guy uh, who it's, it's just his site. I guess it's a blog. I guess I'm reading off of a blog here uh, <laughs> called whatever. And this guy uh, got some of that bread. Now, that bread is the bread that uh, the guy who invented the Xbox. Does anybody remember this? He got some bread, some like 4,000 year old yeast off of some oh, Egyptian pottery. I thought you were suggesting that somehow the invention of the Xbox was based on bread. And no, I was, no. This was just, the guy who was incredibly rich because from of developing the Xbox, and he's filthy rich and he can do whatever he wants. So right. he got some super old yeast. He got some super old yeast, scraped off the side of an Egyptian pottery, and made some bread out of it. I do remember hearing about that, yeah. So this, the author of this article apparently knows that guy, and the guy uh, offered to send him some. So he sent him some bread. FedEx uh, shows up, delivers a package, but he gets there and it's not there. And it says it was signed for. And he's like, I was the only person home. I didn't hear a knock. Someone stole his bread. A porch thief? Well... And you know, and then you know, the the blog is like, people don't normally steal in my community. Oh, they and you're steal like, in our community. And you're like, I roll. <laughs> but anyways, uh, it turns out it was confiscated. The people who had signed it was the police. Oh, uh, the dogs who sniff out, you know, packages to see if there's any contraband in them or anything worse, flagged it. They think maybe it was the four thousand year old yeast or the coriander that is part of the recipe that triggered the dogs or maybe the puppies just wanted some yummy bread that's true you put a treat inside of a box and the dog's gonna be like yeah you know what this is definitely drugs open it up yes because i want to smell it more with my mouth uh when he finally did get the bread back and it had a letter with it this is what we did to your bread um (laughs) this is why we took your bread and he also spoke with somebody. Apparently, they opened up the box, but not the package that the bread was in. Ran it through an x-ray. So <laughs> if you're thinking, I can hide this in some bread, you can't. It's not a good way to do it. Uh, that will get flagged and it will run through an x-ray. But I do like that that it came with a very nice certified letter. Well, did he exactly. have a review? Did he get to eat the bread? Was he it tasty? Did. He did. He s- made a grilled cheese sandwich out of it. I uh, said it was very good. Just like the ancient Egyptians exactly. would have done. Exactly. Right. Get their yeah. panini out. Like. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I just love these uh, these dogs who got to smell out things. And sometimes it's food. Sometimes it's delicious bread. Well, and they mentioned the coriander. That actually probably, I suspect, had a role in it. Because, so coriander is cilantro. Mm-hmm. And I've read that drug mules and shipping containers and everything, they will often hide drugs in shipments of cilantro because the smell is so strong that it hides the smell of the marijuana mm-hmm. or whatever you're shipping. So dogs are being trained for coriander now. Yeah, so now they're basically saying, if you smell that, uh, flag it because it's also probably right. hiding something. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but, you know, thinking about the world 4,000 years ago and what yeast can tell us about that world, 
It's so interesting. Yeah, living organisms that have basically been in hibernation for that yeah. long. Yeah, basically we're dealing with Jurassic Park here. Well, there was a botanist who basically, I think there was something similar where they had discovered seeds of really ancient, now extinct plants. And, mm-hmm. and basically a botanist was like, let's plant them, see if they work, and was able to propagate some of these like ancient ferns. Or I'm okay with that level of Jurassic Parking, like plants and food type things. Okay. Right. If it's mobile, you think that's a little... We should learn our lesson. You don't know what a fern can do. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Especially when they hold a grudge. Yeah, those ferns, man, they're mean. (laughs) All right, next link. Next Next link. link. So did you did you guys ever do time capsules when you were younger? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always pretended that I was doing a time capsule. So you know, like collect some crap from my room. I'm gonna put this somewhere, and then it would just never materialize. The black actually. hole of memory. Oh well, you know, and it would even be something to the effect of like I've collected two things. They're in this box, and now I've forgotten about <laughs> uh, the it. The box is under my bed, and it just sits yeah, there. I have no <laughs> idea. And then somebody throws it away eventually. Did do you remember what you had in yours or mostly toys? I think I was a young kid, so yeah. I was like, "Oh, I know these toys are going to be so special to me when I'm an adult." And of course, I was like, "I don't even remember these toys. <laughs> I don't have any idea why I thought this was special." Well, Elise Martin for Historians.org has an article called "Buried Treasures: Researching the History of the Time Capsule." There was a guy who just wrote a book, "An Untimely Ruins: An Archaeology of American Urban Modernity." He came across a post-apocalyptic novel that had a number of references to time capsules. And this novel was published in 1911. And so he was basically looking at, you know, like, what is the history and how did these come about? So he traces the time capsule back to 1876 as, quote, a spate of such timed devices programmed to be open 100 years later were launched in Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, Amherst, and Ramapo, New York. So this is the time capsule craze was in the 1870s. Yeah, exactly. So basically, the centennial celebration of independence seems to have caused citizens of the United States to focus on the future rather than the past. So um, the idea of what is or isn't a time capsule is something that the article goes into as well. He's defining a time capsule as, quote, an intentional deposit with a preconceived target date at which point it would be open. So it's really only a time capsule if you anticipate unearthing it at some later time. Oh, there's so many restrictions to being a time capsule. And we show <laughs> we throw that word around. Yeah, we do. You know, like you'll open a room that no one's been in. And we'll mm-hmm. be like, it's a time capsule. But that person mm-hmm. didn't intend. Or an old TV show from the 50s. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a time capsule. No, it wasn't certified. It wasn't known. <laughs> it, the time capsule. Commission exactly. gives you a stamp. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's supposed to be an archive that deliberately calls attention to the processes of selection and preservation. So, for example, an Egyptian tomb, not a time capsule. They were not. They didn't intend for it to be open. Exactly right. Yeah. But what's interesting, too, is that a lot of these early 20th century time capsules were created by companies that wanted to call attention to their products not just as a critical part of the present, but as a valuable resource for the future. So, marketing ploy. Well, I mean, isn't that everything? (laughs) Isn't that all of our lives? I do like the optimism that your business will be around in 100 years. Optimism, hubris, two (laughs) two sides of a coin. Yeah, it feels like they're basically saying, ah, this ancient typewriter is going to be super important in 100 years. And you're like, no, it's going to be a laughingstock. (laughs) Well, but some historians have avoided using or giving credence to time capsules 
because of this notion that we are meant to be using untended archival material, not intended sources, deliberately constructing collections for future historians. Is there a rift in the time capsule community? <laughs> a little bit, because <laughs> as historians, you're trying to get an accurate record of what people were doing, how they lived, as if they were unobserved, right? right. So it's like a double-blind part of the study. Exactly. So opening a room that nobody's been in for a while... Is the real time capsule. <laughs> or it's a little bit more of a historical accuracy, whereas time capsules are perhaps not as accurate because they were presented and intended with an audience of the future. Curated. <laughs> exactly. We want to put our best foot forward for those people 100 years from now. Exactly. It's, it's important that people of the future like us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, their <laughs> approval, our validation levels, I think, are not high enough. We need people who don't exist yet to mm -hmm. also think we're really cool. Whereas, you know, I'm living in Mesopotamia and I have a pot with food that I'm eating and who cares about, oh, a volcano or oh, something's happening. Oh, right. no. Now that's the real deal. They didn't even know it was coming. That's right. right? It's preserved. Mm -hmm. I think we got another, you know, plot on our hands. So we have our television show that takes place in Port Roberts. Extended drama series. Yes. Yeah. And now we can have like a movie about the rivalry between the, in the time <laughs> capsule community. You, you know, a real historical gritty thing where Brad Pitt gains like 50 pounds but the title for no real reason. The title is still a pun, like, you know, a time for change. Exactly. There's got to have something in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. All right. So this is kind of cool and kind of scary. This comes from the New York Times, Heather Murphy. So when you get a bone marrow transplant, you are literally taking someone else's bone marrow, injecting it into yours. And they've known for sort of a while that this can sometimes create a chimera where you have someone else's DNA going around in your blood and it's just kind of mixing with yours and they, you know. And there have been some sort of criminal repercussions for this, because if you donate your blood to someone and that or you donate your bone marrow to someone and that person goes and commits a crime, they could leave your DNA oh. at the scene. And this was sort of first discovered when they had a crime scene with a man's DNA, but the man was in prison. They knew for sure where he had been and he had not been at the crime scene. And they said, well, how did this happen? And then it turns out, oh, this guy actually was a bone marrow donor. And that's how, and oh, now we know who did it because we know who his bone marrow recipient was. But there have been other cases where it wasn't just the blood. And they started to kind of question this because, for example, there was a rape where a woman was not believed because she said there had been one attacker. And when they did the rape kit, they found two, two. sets of oh, DNA. Wow. And on the one hand, they eventually sort of figured out, oh, no, she was telling the truth. And this is because this person who was a rapist was also a former leukemia patient. But also they said, wait a second, we thought it was only blood. This presents some interesting conundrum. We would really like to find out to what degree does someone who gets a bone marrow transplant start to get the person's DNA throughout the rest of their body. And then by coincidence, this guy who worked in the forensic lab happened to get leukemia. And so he said to all of his coworkers, listen, I'm going to get a bone marrow transplant. I'm going to be your study subject. Oh, wow. He said, we're going to swab every part of my body. I'm going to get the bone marrow transplant. And then we're going to keep swabbing me regularly afterwards to see how fast does it spread? Where does it spread? And so they've sort of concluded the study. They published their results. It's been four years now. So within four months... It was in his skin, his tongue, his cheeks. Swabs from all over his body were registering his donor's DNA, who was a man from Germany. And they said that the only part of his body that was not affected was his head hair and chest hair. Something about the hair never picked up the DNA. But everything else 
in his body showed parts of this guy's DNA. And they said now, four years after the transplant, 100% of his sperm is the donor's DNA. So they said, hypothetically, if this guy had a baby, it would not be genetically his baby. It would be this guy in Germany's baby. So it wouldn't be a combo of DNA. It would be wholesale the donor. Well, that was what they said. They said some people, they have since done further studies, and some people have a mix where they have some sperm of their own and some of the donor sperm. But they said in this case, 100% of his sperm was the donor's sperm. And they said, fortunately, in this case, it doesn't matter. This guy's older. He's had a vasectomy. He's not having any kids. But they said this could have real implications because there are 10,000 bone marrow transplants done every year. It's a very common procedure. And they're sort of just now figuring out, hang on a second. This is really affecting the bodies of these recipients in a way we didn't understand. That's evolutionarily very interesting, though, to think that that's the thing that it completely takes over. Because you don't want to pass on a leukemia gene. That's true. Uh, so if you have a stronger... The first thing mm-hmm. it's going to take over is the propagation is, Yeah, because that's the most important thing. I mean, we can say we're here to do all sorts of things. I know we have dreams, but we're really here to just make more people. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, there's an interesting sort of epigenetic field of research as well, but the idea that like behaviors and emotional things can also be passed down genetically as well. I wonder kind of how that plays into this as well, because you mentioned there had been a rapist who had been a leukemia survivor. Would there be certain kind of, you know, behavioral conditions that could, you know, yay, maybe you're not going to have, you know, leukemia, but maybe you've got some other things going on that might be Yeah, less what desirable. gets triggered that's in your DNA mm-hmm. now that this is now also your DNA. Yeah. And does the reverse apply for women and their eggs and not just men and sperm? I don't know. They didn't have, they haven't tested any of that, I think, although they did note that frequently donors are of the opposite sex. They said there's no reason why, as a woman, you can't get a donation of bone marrow from a man. Mm -hmm. And so that may have all sorts of implications about how does that affect your body to now have male DNA, actual Y chromosomes, going through your body. Wild. Yeah. Be careful if you get leukemia. I mean, it's better than dying. Yeah. You know, if your choice is die of leukemia or have someone else's DNA, I think, you know, you just got to go mutant. Yeah. And then go commit a bunch of crimes because you're not going to get caught. (laughs) Amazing. Don't do that. All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This is from Atlas Obscura. This is about a photographer who went to uh, photograph isotopes in Chernobyl. You can go to Chernobyl now. Probably it's uh, expensive or, you know, there's a lot of arranging involved. But you can go there and take some effing selfies of yourself if you want to. It was big with influencers a while back, like people taking like really saucy or sexy selfies mm-hmm. there Ugh. oh yeah yeah it's when the sh- when the hbo show came out everybody sure was, yeah. yeah i can see how that would yeah. renew interest in it right. real messed up the, so this is in 2007 ish around that this woman was going there she went there a bunch of times and she used this uh film that you would use to um for chest x-rays and she would take them and place them on the ground or maybe tape them to a tree. But basically, they would eventually develop because of the radiation that was around. Oh, so it was like a slow motion X-ray that she yeah, was taking. Yeah, a, lo- yeah, a, a long X-ray. And uh, she would just go and check on them. And so this article has scans of these slides, these pieces of film, and they're very crazy looking. They look like anything that uh, maybe a conspiracy nut would... <laughs> Love. It looks like it looks like a lights in the distance. It Super looks like creepy. ghosts. It's very creepy. They're very interesting. You should totally mm-hmm. so because different these than things any, are still radioactive. Yes, and it's so different than anything. You know, people go there and they take pictures of the wasteland of it or the mm-hmm. um, post-apocalypticness of it. 
and she's literally recording these isotopes like in a photo lab. You guys, there used to be this thing. It was called film. <laughs> we put it into a thing called a camera. And you'd only have 24 to 36 shots. And you wouldn't know what you had until you finished them all, sent them off, got them back two weeks later. And it was stupidly expensive. It really was. Do you remember like the quickie huts where it was just like one hour development, like little standalone kind of huts where you could do it too? Mm -hmm. And rumors of people who were, you know, working and developing and see all of your photos before you do. That's true. That was the part you didn't want to think about was this person definitely looked at all your photos. It definitely would inhibit you from doing certain things. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This is a quickie since we've been talking about um, bodies, DNA, things like that. Uh, but Agence France Press for The Guardian has an article called China Gene Edited Baby Experiment, quote, may have created unintended mutations. You think? You think? <laughs> surprise, surprise. So the gene editing performed on Chinese twins. So in China, they're really breaking all kinds of ground and possibly boundaries mm-hmm. and ethical, moral dilemmas. Right. Um, but they basically were, you know, it, it was a noble aim. They were looking to immunize these Chinese twins against yes. HIV, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So basically, a small percentage of people are born with HIV immunity because of a mutation in a gene called CCR5. And it was this gene that Chinese biophysicist He Jiangqi had claimed to have targeted using a powerful editing tool known as CRISPR. Have you guys heard of CRISPR? Mm -hmm. There's been a whole lot of stuff happening. I mean, it's basically just an editor. You can go into an embryo and say, change that gene, and it's like, got it. Exactly right, which is exciting and terrifying and causing all kinds of rifts in the scientific community, you know, even when you're not talking about human beings. So they basically targeted the correct gene, but they did not replicate the, quote, Delta 32 variation required. Instead, they created novel edits whose effects are not clear. So they missed. They aimed for a gene, and they didn't quite get the part of the gene they wanted, and now they're like, well, we'll find out what happened. They hit something. And these babies have been born, and now we're just going to see. That's pretty much it. Um, Obviously, CRISPR remains an imperfect tool. It's relatively recent. It is imperfect. But it's impossible to carry out a comprehensive search without inspecting each of the embryo's cells and destroying it in the process. So this is why we don't use CRISPR on humans. If you really want to figure out what you're doing and if you did it right, you basically have to destroy in order to do the full analysis. Yeah, to know for sure you did it, you've undone all your work. Exactly. So I hope you guys are fans of X-Men. It's happening. That's right. Well, Or you could just get a bone marrow transplant and just you know, <laughs> be somebody else. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's just a lot of Jurassic Park territory. <laughs> Theme of the week. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, unfortunately, I have a little bit more Jurassic Park territory. <laughs> I mean, it's the theme. That's are right. we are we going anywhere else in this world? <laughs> uh, this is from sciencealert.com. It's a little write-up about uh, a new study that came out. This is more about uh, blood testing. So they've looked at the proteins in our blood. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of proteins, but they isolated about 1,300, you know, not many, that are directly correlated to the aging of our body. So as we get older, certain proteins go down, quantities of certain proteins go up. It's kind of a a fluctuating pattern, but they sort of isolated these particular proteins as really closely connected to how old we are. And they've developed a test that can basically take a sample of blood and tell you within three years how old you are. And this, you know, there are times when it's off. 
But they also noted that in the times where it was significantly off, that individual was sort of recognizably especially young or especially old for their age, mm. so to speak. You know, they're a very, very healthy 40-year-old or they're 45, but, oh, they've been drinking a whole lot and they're really, they're a lot older than 45. Mm -hmm. But what they found was over the course of your life, these shifts in the proteins are not stable increases or decreases or sine waves. They go in very distinct shifts. And they said there's three main periods of aging, and they pinpointed them at age 34, 60, and 78, when you sort of enter a new phase of being old. And so when you wake up and you're 34 and you feel like, oh, my God, everything is falling apart, <laughs> you're not wrong. Your body really has gone through a sudden change that kind was of like not gradual. Kind of like how infants go through developmental leaps, mm -hmm. maybe? There's just a sudden wow, yesterday they couldn't do anything and now they're doing everything. Yeah. And the aging process apparently is the same where you uh -huh. hit 34 and you suddenly become a lot older in a very short period of time. I like that it's 34, 60 and 78. Is mm -hmm. that what you said? We definitely tend to prescribe to some sort of decade thing. Mm -hmm. Decadinal. I'm going to make that word up right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Decadinal. Uh, decadinal. Uh, where, you know, you hit 40 and... It goes downhill and you have 50 and oh, man. That's too frequent. Let's yeah. just keep it at those three stages. I just can't wait next time I know somebody turns 34 and be like, <laughs> over the hill. <laughs> it's all over for you now. The birthday uh, card industry is about to be revolutionized. Yeah, those those over the hill, sad 40s. Change it to 34. Well, and you're going to lose out on all your rhymes. you got like, lordy, lordy, look who's 40. Like, what are you going to go with, 34? I don't remember change, anything significantly changing at 34. Which is interesting to think that maybe I would one day wake up and well, it would and feel different. Maybe, maybe that's because you are, quote, younger than your age. We're going to need some of your blood, Courtney. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's a real thing. That, so that was another thing they talked about in this article was the idea that they've known for a while injections of a young person's blood will make you healthier and will make you live longer. And there was actually, I don't know if you guys watched Silicon Valley. There was an episode about this uh, really, really ridiculously rich people who have nothing better to do than try to live forever. They spend their money on what are known as blood boys. So a young, really fit, healthy 20-year-old comes to your house and hooks up an IV and literally, like, does a blood infusion. I'm pretty sure that's in Mad Max. Are you sure you're not talking about Mad Max? <laughs> I'm definitely talking about Silicon Valley, but it could also be in Mad Max. Mad Max Fury Road. Did they do blood transfusions yeah, they have, in that movie? they have literal dudes called blood bags. Uh, they're just for one person. <laughs> well, and that was what this was. It was like, you're the really rich person. You've got these, yeah. these healthy people come and giving, giving their blood to you. Yep. I mean, vampire lore. Are we not drawing that connection? I, Hello? So this is something I've thought about over and over again. Why doesn't motherhood make you younger? You literally have a young person inside of you. Yeah, but they're siphoning. You're not, you're not taking from them. You're giving. Yeah, well, your blood doesn't mingle either. You've got that, the, the placenta that stuff goes in, but stuff doesn't come out. Because if stuff does come out, you actually have a problem. Listen like to me. Actually... If evolution understood anything, <laughs> it would know that the best way to get us to do anything is to appease our vanity. Make motherhood make you younger, evolution, if you're listening. <laughs> And the Take population notes. will go crazy. It's true. If you got like more vibrant and younger and yeah. And I'd be so. pregnant all the time. <laughs> <laughs> then I'd be like, oh, God, why do I have all these kids? Well, you know, they have found that there is a, something like you're talking about evolutionarily. When you get pregnant, if you have a lot of toxins built up in your body, they all get dumped into the fetus. Aww. Like it's really like they and it wasn't really a problem until now we've got like sort of a much heavier toxic load. They're finding in heavily polluted areas, yeah. babies being born 
with tons of toxic exposure yeah. because not because the mother was exposed during pregnancy, but because the mother had built up and accumulated over so much over life. her lifetime. Mm-hmm. And they're testing her and she's like, I feel amazing. I feel so <gasps> good. And they're like, yeah, that's because you dumped a bunch of lead you, into you, your oh, baby. Oh. <laughs> you, uh, you, you, you loaded up your parasite. Yeah. Oh, and evolutionarily, I'm sure the evolution's just like, all right, cool. First one's a goner. Just yeah. dump everything into that one. And then the second baby will be yeah, nice and healthy. It's going to be great. Just, we're calling you first draft. Yes. <laughs> All right. And on that note, next link. Next, next link. link. This one's about evolution as well. Ooh. It's about why mammals are good at hearing and chewing. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a lizard. Guys, have you seen a lizard? I have, I have a lot of them out of my house. Seen a snake? Uh, their ears are directly connected to their jaws. And they, they don't chew. They, they don't like chew. open their mouth and they swallow. They open their mouth and swallow. If they were to chew, if they had the ability to chew, it would just fall out because they don't have lips. Oh, <laughs> Which <poor> is <laughs> hilarious to think about them just eating and stuff just falling out. I really want to, I'm picturing lizards with lips now though, and it's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's a little sexy. It's like, the, it's like you know, Bugs Bunny puts on some lipstick and a dress and all of a sudden he's super attractive to everybody. Get a little, little bit of full lips on that lizard and all of a sudden <laughs> lizard lips <laughs> yeah so they and also the fact that they can't uh, so when we chew we require up and down and left and right mm-hmm. and they can't do that and uh, one of the reasons why is because of the way that their jaws fuse together and wh- how their ears involved I didn't know this until I read this article that uh, those animals hear things by putting their jaw on the ground Oh, um, a vibration, so, mm-hmm. right? But, and it goes into their like ear canal, which is connected to their jaw. We have three tiny bones, right? Um, which is what makes it so that we can hear in the air, which is a a huge development. So they can't hear in the air, like if they right. hear a sound, but they don't feel the vibration because it's according to this article. Hmm. Now it's from the Atlantic, who I trust. But I do not trust necessarily my reading comprehension when it comes to science. <laughs> I read this as well as I could. Um, but I, but from what I understand, yes, that's how they hear. So they don't pick things up in the air like we do. These three bones are what made, you know, made it so that we could chew. The three bones allowed our ear to be separated from our jaw and then our jaw to go up and down. Because if it was all connected, our jaw would be locked in place. Yeah. Okay. And so this hearing thing led to us being able to, mammals in general, being able to evolve so much uh, more. All the stuff that we do, the, the... the songs that we listen to, the things that we sing. Well, in speech. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have speech if you can't hear things in the air. It's so. all coming from these like three tiny bones that are in our ear. It's crazy. I think that's crazy. So do they think that the hearing evolved and then we're basically like, oh, cool, we can chew. So let's eat different things. Or do they think it was the chewing that was the impetus for the, the hearing to separate off? So but the way that the article presents it, it's like our hearing developed and these benefits. And then we happen. got the benefit of chewing delicious stuff instead of just raw meat that we cut. Right. Tear. But, lipless. I mean, you know, folks at home, if you are ever reading a story and it's about a scientific discovery, there is a much more boring and difficult to parse <laughs> version of that that the person who wrote that article has tried to read through. And present to you in a way that you can consume it. That's right. It's an underappreciated skill. Also knowing that that person might make some mistakes. Yes. And then a person might read that and then try and convey that on a podcast. And we should not forgive her at all. Ever. <laughs> Ever. And yeah, so, happens. you know, so uh, I would say go back and read the scientific study. <laughs> 
that's my that's my recommendation. Usually a good advice, especially yeah. for articles on the internet. And listen to some beautiful music and appreciate your ear bones. That's right. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are so glad that you came and joined us. If you happen to notice the lack of a certain mellifluous Italian baritone on our microphones today. That is because Curtis is traveling for work. We wish him well. He is traveling for work because, like all of us, he has a day job. This is not, in fact, a financial boon for all of us. We do this as a labor of love, and we hope that you enjoy it. If you'd like to help support us and keep us going, you can go to our Patreon at Damn Interesting Week, or you can donate through damninteresting.com in a number of ways and just let the uh, website owner know that it is for the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We hope that you will join us next week. We're having fun and looking forward to another great set of articles. In the meantime, I'm Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Courtney Hopkin. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.